If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before. Because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger... Not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Britain is a land full of lost settlements, villages, towns, and even cities. In his new book, Shadowlands A Journey Through Lost Britain, Historian Matthew Green explores some of these bygone places and considers why and how they disappeared. Dave Musgrove put in a call to Matthew to find out more. He started by asking Matthew how he chose the lost places that feature in the book. I look at 10 of them in the book. There are, in fact, a lot more, but I didn't want it to turn into an encyclopedia. Um, I kind of curated um, 10 memorable stations on, on what I call my itinerary of destruction. And I wanted to look at, you know, you, you might be like, well, how do you know which ones to include? I, I had quite a strict metric, which was I wanted to look at places that had imploded rather than exploded. Because if you think about it, you know, you could say Roman London is a lost city, um, or you could say kind of Colchester or Bath. But the thing about those places is that they, you know, there may have been a gap in their development, but they did expand outwards and they became at least a nucleus for later cities. I wanted to look at places that had had, had quailed um, before the historical process imploded inwards. And now there's either nothing left or there's very little left indeed to see because these are the sorts of places that I think are hidden and people don't generally know about but they have had an impact on on our landscape and on our history. 
the opening line of your book is one that I, I liked. Uh, it is, there is something thrilling about a lost city or ghost town, something that draws us in. And, and I would agree with that sentiment. But mm. um, you've, you've investigated this. What is it, do you think, that uh, so fascinates us uh, about the concept of a lost settlement? Well, firstly, I'm I'm really glad you like the opening sentence because I probably <laughs> went through about a million discarded ones and and, and it actually came up with that one almost just spontaneously. You know, sometimes the, the the unlabored sentences are the best ones. But in terms of this question of the universal allure of the lost city, you know, um, we we think of Atlantis, we think of kind of lost Egyptian cities, perhaps we think of Pompeii. But I I would say you know as succinctly as possible, they're sort of titillating. Um, but not necessarily in a positive way, because they seem to prognosticate our own likely ruin. So when you see lost cities, it's almost like time is in abeyance or time is on hold. Um, And obviously we're interested in it from a historical perspective, but it seems to have this power over us because we think, like, goodness, you know, what if one day some of our own towns and cities are left kind of faintly penciled into the grass or more pertinently underwater? So I I think that's one of the reasons, but on a metaphorical level, they're sort of emblems of transience and, 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 and mortality and a sense that, you know, that we shouldn't think of as, as more time goes on, this kind of inexorable march of progress, you know, this sort of Whiggish view of history, there's a lot of lost causes, dead ends, and false starts. And I think that's important historically, but I, I think people can relate to that in their own lives as well, with the sort of products of mistakes and failures as much as of great triumphs and successes. And is is it a modern fascination with lost settlements and cities? You mentioned Atlantis, uh, or is it something which has gone through out the, the you know the entirety of the human condition? Do you think? Uh, that's a very good question. I, I mean, I, I think it's. I wouldn't say it's modern, but it stretches back to at least the 18th century, the Romantic period, because obviously there needs to be a bit of a gap between these town cities islands villages being lost being buried drowned decimated um you know there, there needs to be a gap because there's a vo- there's an empirical void if you take the city of donich you know the medieval city a lot of the records the parish records were swept off that cliff along with so much of the city um so myths begin to build up there's a kind of empir- empirical void into which myths flow um and then certainly by the time i'd say actually the the Renaissance, um, there's a real interest in lost places. One of the ones I look at, again, Dunwich, um, the, the great horseback topographer, John Stowe, who famously chronicled London, he's sent to Dunwich on a fact-finding mission. You know, he's like, well, did it, did it have 50 churches? Did it have a mint? Did it have like... Um, and, and they begin to try to get to the um, empirical truth you know, to this day, there's myths. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening will, will will think of, you know, this idea that if you stand on the cliffs of Dunwich, you're meant to be able to hear the 50 bells sounding from the deep. Um, obviously, that would be difficult, just in and of itself, but there were only ever seven churches, so um, especially so. Um, so, yeah, I think it's basically Renaissance onwards, but um, it's been exacerbated, I would say, in recent decades because of the effects of the climate crisis um you know a quintessential lost city is drowned we think of atlantis and you know lots of reports say that our you know our own capital city might be largely underwater by the end of the century if not sooner so it, it, it's taken on a sort of menacing edge but the the fascination i would say stretches back to the renaissance 
Okay. Uh, you've mentioned Dunwich a couple of times there. We'll come back to that. So listeners, hold that thought um, if you're not familiar with what Dunwich is, and we'll we'll come back and talk about it in a minute. Um, so uh, I'm going to throw, throw another quote at you from, from your book. Uh, mm. you, you say in the introduction, a map of Britain in 1225 would show thousands of settlements, not just villages, but towns and cities too, that do not appear on today's charts or which exist only as a shadow of their former selves. So that's mm-hmm. a pretty big scale um, we're talking about here in terms of abandoned yep. settlements. Um, mm-hmm. Were there particular moments in British history where um, places became abandoned? Uh, there were. Um, and in terms of clusters, there are particular pressure points sometimes literally, the transition between the medieval warm period and the Little Ice Age was accompanied by um, inimically tempestuous weather that put pay not just to Dunwich, but places like Old Winchelsea, um, Old Ravenza, um, elsewhere as well. That's one thing. Um, A number of places, believe it or not, were deliberately drowned in the 20th and 19th century um, to pave the way for industrial progress because places like Liverpool wanted a new source of drinking water, so they drown you know, the, the Welsh-speaking village of Capelcaelin um, in North Wales. Um, but perhaps the two biggest um, mediums of oblivion, is, is what I'd rather histrionically call them, um, would be um, in the wake of the Black Death, um, you get the rise of what are called deserted medieval villages, of which there are at least 3,000 just in England alone. And lots of people seem to think that these were wiped out by the Black Death and, you know, the, the, the this disease billowed through the land and people's buboes exploded and villages turned into a great pile of rotting timbers and sort of Boschian scenes. But that very rarely actually happened. It's much more to do with the long-term economic consequences, such as because uh, demand for labour massively outstripped supply, uh, labourers became more mercenary. They could demand higher wages and landowners were like, well, why should we? You know, we can just convert the lands to pasture and um, given the increasing price of of wool. Um, so, so thousands and thousands of villages were hollowed out because of that, um, the enclosures. Um, that's one. Also, think about the Second World War. Um, we had to have lands to train troops for the D-Day landings. So you get these great sort of military tumours um, carving their way through the landmass. And it's amazing to say about 20% of the entire landmass of the United Kingdom were, were appropriated by the military in the early 1940s. All the villages within, within not quite all of them, but a lot of them, uh, forcibly evicted, zombified, and much of that has never been given back. So we identify, or I identify throughout the book, that these mediums of oblivion, and it's kind of chilling to, to think which ones might, might, might still come back to haunt us in, in the decades and centuries ahead. So you've, you've talked about some sort of big... Uh, societal trends there, or big events, big historical events that led to specific periods when when lots of places did become abandoned. I guess there there would also be specific local conditions that might apply to certain places. Um, did you do you find a lot of that the way places that that become abandoned for specific local conditions and reasons? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. It, it, it's not all about uh, the big general trend. It's t- sometimes exactly as you say, due to the specificities of what's going on. Um, I mean, if you take Trelec in the Welsh marches, uh, extraordinary. No, no one really knows where it's gone, though these rental rolls from 1288 that 
if they're true, claimed that it was probably the, the, the second biggest town in the whole of Wales. Um, and yet if you go there today, it's this, it's there's a sort of sense of mystical tranquility. It's sort of sleepiness incarnate. And you're sort of like, where on earth has this city gone? Then in 2002, moles started digging up chards of medieval pottery and this actually provoked a archaeology graduate to, to buy the whole field and dig it up and and excavate what he assumed was the heart of this lost city. But that was in the Welsh marches, disputed territory. It's been called the Wild West of Britain. The um, colonising Anglo-Normans set up, uh, you know, iron mining there to, to mine weapons and munitions for their campaigns to crush the Welsh. Um, but then the, the declared dynasty died at Banachburn, um, and the the actual city itself got attacked by the native Welsh and was ravaged by plague. So that slowly sank beneath the soil. So specific conditions and geography contributed to that. And of course, have you been to St Kilda um, in the Outer Hebrides? I'm, I'm afraid I haven't. It's on my on my to-do list. Oh, well, you I'd will like be going. Go. <laughs> You'll be going after this podcast. Um, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's a terrifying journey to get there. Remotest part, highest cliffs in Britain. Um, and the specificity, specificities of its location um, meant that there had been this relatively sort of um, self-sustaining, quite egalitarian community um, that had existed there. But with with, with the arrival of tourists, particularly um, in the late Georgian, early Victorian period, um, they began to introduce them to new concepts like money and luxuries and sweet sugar, tobacco, which kind of undermines this autarky that they'd maintained um, and meant that uh, they, they... basically no longer wanted to just like grab the the fulmars and the puffins and the um gannets from the cliffs but they were instilled with wanderlust and a, a sense that an easier life was possible its extreme geographical location began to mitigate against it so in 1930 they actually very sadly drowned all their dogs in the bay only 36 islanders left and and they evacuated it so um in those two cases certainly it's it's not always to do with these big trends um and and some of the stories are, 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 are very sort of unpredictable i mean winchelsea have you been to that one it's it's opposite rye um no, no? Ag- again you've got me there no i've never <laughs> been to okay you've got you've got your itinerary <laughs> of destruction but i mean most people indeed when i went the the lady that ran the guest house was like telling me about rye which everybody knows about but winchelsea's was, was this huge swaggering kind of entrepot of medieval wine there was an old winchelsea that was built on a spit it was clawed off by these medieval sea storms into the deep but then edward the first was so enamored with this place that he rebuilt it or translated it onto a hill further inland and it was forged to this rather extraordinary monumental gridiron layout like a kind of medieval manhattan and it's an amazing place all these wonderful wine caves that were once alive with kind of lute music and different types of wine from gas they called it the exterminator of the world's sorrows back then um and it flourished but then um the the harbor the tidal harbor regressed so the sea that had destroyed it once inundated at once re- retreated and and then there was nothing they could do about it it was the, just this port of stranded pride as it's been called um and again that was very much to do with the specifics of its location and, and the nature of the trade with wine as well because there was a uh, with the outbreak of the hundred years war they could no longer trade so easily with france so in that case too very specific stories and one, one of the conclusions from it all is you never really know what's in the shadow of oblivion um until it's too late none of these None of the people that lived there really knew that um, they, they were imperiled. Um, I mean, the first 
thing. The, the residents of Kapil Kalin knew about it, was reading it in a newspaper a couple of days before Christmas, 1955. You know, your village is going to be drowned. No one had told them. So it can sneak up upon you. Um, and it's rather unsettling. Mm. But at least they got some advance warning, uh, or at least they knew yeah. what was going on. I mean, going back to Winchelsea, did the people know what was that? Presumably, they could see that uh, trouble was afoot with the silting up of the harbour. Yes, I think it must have been unnerving when they saw that the, the, the bigger ships could no longer get into the harbour and they were beached in the mud. So um, that that was ominous. And 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 I'd say actually, a, a old Winchelsea. You know, struck by storms from pretty much from the 1250s. The, the monk, Matthew Paris, really good at evoking these furious sea storms. Um, and more and more and more of that got chipped away. Uh, and, and, and there's this rather memorable haunting words where Edward I says, you know, like, much of it is sunk and the rest is hopeless long to stand. Um, so they, they kind of knew, but not not always. Um, and there are indeed some places I look at, we've got absolutely no idea why they became abandoned. The prehistoric settlement of Scarabray on Orkney, um, it was preserved in sand for almost 5,000 years. It was basically found in a sand dune, which a storm ripped off in 1850. Everyone assumed, well, there were, you know, that, that's why it was destroyed because there was a sandstorm and everyone had to leave but that doesn't really make sense because you could just dig the sand out so we don't know whether there was some plague whether uh they, they re-embraced a nomadic lifestyle whether they went to live in a different kind of settlement we, we, we just don't know so it, it's not always a clear picture still to come on the history extra podcast London became Lunden Vic, which is where Covent Garden is today. And the original shell became this sort of monstrous overgrown place with, with, with brambles and infested with Vikings and even wolves. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem 
of a detour. And now, now I have been to Scarborough, so I can, okay, I can finally say I've been to one of these places. And I tell yeah. you, Scarborough is an amazing place, isn't it? an amazing place to visit. And that's one. Of, so basically, that's what you're doing in your book is you're exploring these these uh, these places that you uh, that you talk about. And that, that's the beauty of the book. You go and have a look, and you and you tell us what you can see. So in these places, how how often is there something to actually see nowadays on the ground of these abandoned sites? Well, there's not always anything to see, but there's certainly always something to feel. Um, I mean, Donich, uh, the medieval city, um, once one of the principal urban settlements in East Anglia. I mean, literally, that 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 when the first sea storms struck, it precipitated a process of coastal erosion, which meant that by 1922 there was just this sole ghostly fragment of the sole surviving church, which just toppled off. Then there was basically nothing apart from Greyfriars, but that was outside the town and a rather fetching leper chapel. That was outside the town. There's nothing there, but you can go and stand on the cliff and stare out and just imagine the lost city mouldering beneath the rippling waves of the North Sea. And, 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 and artists and writers have been doing that for years. Henry James was drawn there and he said the, the, the minor key is struck with such felicity it leaves no sigh unbreathed and there's a real presence in what is missing. So in that case... You need to use your imagination. But in other places, as you say, there's actually quite a lot left to see. So Scarabray, as you know, luckily, there are hardly any uh, trees, I think that's right, on, on Orkney. So everything was made out of stone. Um, and you can peer in and exquisitely preserved in, in this. I mean, you, you can see dresses and bed frames and fireplaces and this sort of mellow domesticity brings a flicker of familiarity through the, the cold abyss of millennia. So you can really imagine it. Um, if you go to somewhere like Winchelsea, it's, you know, it's still there, but it's a village. I, I describe it in the book as a spectral echo of, of, of it in its medieval grandeur. You can still feel the grid layout, but it, it, it's very legend. When I was there, it was sort of retired oil executives um, talking about past military glories and medieval Winchelsea. It was a very strange place. Um, and, and it just stops just when the town was getting going at what was called Monday Market. It, it just melts away. And you find these incredible shards just in the field, like they've been shot from out of space and they've landed and crash landed in the belly of this field, which were once monasteries and leper colonies. And, and then you find a gate, which was once one of the main gate. And it's just marooned in these lonely green fields. And, 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 and that really sort of it's sad but it, it moves you um obviously someone like Capel Kalen drowns uh again it's just a reservoir some of them I mean you would visit at your own peril um my seventh chapter is about this mysterious military enclave called Stanta in Brecklands in Norfolk and Suffolk which was a cluster of villages um, taken over by the military in the 1940s and zombified and turned into a peculiar thing. They turned it into a Nazi village in the 1940s, a Soviet village in the 1980s. And until recently, there was a vivid simulacrum of an Afghan village replete with amputee actors playing the victims of suicide bombers and um, synthetic aromas, that kind of thing. I mean, you, you, it's very hard to get in there. And what one would be advised not to try and climb over the perimeter fence. Um, but in all the places, there's, there's something to feel, if not to see. That's what I would say. 
Mm. And one of your other places uh, again, which I have been to, so I'm gonna I'm gonna um, big myself up Warren Percy um, up yes. in up in Yorkshire, a beautiful place, uh, a DMV, mm. a deserted medieval yes. village, and there is something to see there, isn't there? You can see uh, the the lines of the street layout, mm. and you can see some of the uh, some of the, the the foundations of some of the houses there. So tell us about Warren Percy and, and what's to see there. Well, Warren Percy was one of my favourites, actually. Uh, not not least because of the sign. Did you see the signpost? Just this, this, it's this curious, just a tiny little signpost on the main road that just says "deserted medieval village" and points <laughs> down a track, yeah. almost like it's a it's a prank or something. So you walk down this bumpy track over a sty, um, and then you're. I mean, you're in the. It's a beautiful locale. It's the Yorkshire world. It's got a certain upland splendour that's quite at odds with the the tragedy and misery of what went on there. But this is one of those places that I was mentioning earlier, ravaged by the Great Death, as they called it, the the rootless phantom that has no um, mercy for fair countenance, as a Welsh poet put it. But the the the, the Black Death only really had a death rate of 50%. I say only really, that's obviously very high, but um, there was no reason why it should have wiped out entire settlements because uh, you, you still had one in every two people alive. They're not going to build new places from scratch. They can just go back. Um, so it, it weathered that, um, but gradually went into decay, as I said, because the landowners decided to evict these laborers who are asking for too much money to till the fields, replace them with sheep. So you've got all this literature in, in Tudor times. Thomas More's written about man-eating sheep coming in with their fangs and like eating men and <laughs> expelling retinue. And, and he's very unhappy about that. Um, Cardinal Wolsey actually orders an inquisition into the, into the whole thing, in which you can hear the voices of the dispossessed. So yes, it was abandoned entirely in the 15th century, and nature has taken its course. So as you, as you will know, you've been there, you, you can see, as you said, the outlines of the streets penciled into the earth. Um, you can feel the curious dips and grooves, and you can see the haunting remains of St. Martin's Church Tower, which looks like a beast has chomped it, I, I thought, when I went there. Um, and just remarkable. And it's one of the most popular deserted medieval villages. And I was fascinated. Why are we drawn to these places? You know, what is it that we see in them? And I, I, I think it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. It's sort of emblem of transience and mortality, an awful premonition of, of future events. And of course, it has a particular resonance now, having just gone through coronavirus, which mercifully had a much lower death rate than 50%. But nonetheless, um, it's a sort of place you never forget, though, I think you'll agree. Mm, absolutely, they're places places that make you think, make you stop and think, mm. um, and and that's that's what your book does as well. Thank I you. wonder. Um, so you've outlined some of the reasons and the causes why places might become abandoned. What mm. what happens to these abandoned places in the in the immediate aftermath of them going out of use as, as settlements? How quickly do they fade from view, or is that something you can't really generalize about? Um, I think you can. It's um, very rarely in this country, at least, do you get places that are just destroyed in um, a sort of bloody click of the fingers, like Pompeii. You know that was that was sudden. Um, even places that were washed away in the sea, like Old Winchelsea, it didn't happen like on one date. It took at least kind of fifty years. Um, so, in the majority of cases one of two things happened. They're either taken over by the military. This is an interesting phenomenon. It happens in St Kilda. It's abandoned in 1930 and soon becomes a military base. 
the abandoned villages in Breckland get taken over by the military. So when places become non-places, the whole essence of them becomes more functional. They become ripe for some sort of military takeover. That can happen very quickly. But in general, what happens is a very slow decline. Um, and something we forget, actually, is that, I mean, imagine you're an Anglo-Saxon just wandering around, um, or even someone in the early medieval period, but Britain would have been absolutely littered with the remains of Roman towns and cities, you know, places like Silchester. Um, and th- th- this sort of sense that, you know, like a, a place either vanishes completely or immediately becomes a, an attraction um, di- didn't really, I, I don't think really stands. I think generally the, these are shadowlands, as, as, as the book is called. They're, they're sort of liminal spaces that slowly decline. So somewhere like Trelec, it's still there, but it's a tiny village. It would be unrecognisable to the, the iron miners who worked there before. Dunwich, I mean, the, it, it's, it's, it's a tiny little seaside street. It's just a street. You know, this was once a sprawling city. Um, so usually um, a slow decline, but then these places begin to get reimagined and resurrected in the imagination um, centuries later. So Winchelsea and Donich were in fact great um, lightning rods for artists, writers, and musicians who are drawn to the kind of allure of decay and the sort of sense of faded grandeur um, and then they begin to kind of re- re-establish and recreate the places that have vanished in the popular imagination. Um, so it, it, it's slow and gradual um, rather than a kind of catastrophic um, click of the fingers. But that idea of places living on with a certain folk memory is, is an interesting concept, isn't it? You, you evoke um, the Anglo-Saxon poem, The Ruin, um, yes. to, sort of, to help us understand that. Tell us a little bit about that poem and, what that, and how that helps us understand how a place might live on after its, um, uh, its, its physical usefulness has, has passed. Yes, well, th- this is a, a poem um, about a ruined Roman town. That's all we can really say with certainty. Um, but it's beautifully evocative. Um, it, it sort of contrasts what the author imagines this place must have been like in its prime, with the steam baths and and the, and the sort of the, the mead cauldrons and, and and the warriors like having having their sort of perfume baths after some great victory, um, with its pitiful remains. And you know, it says all those heroes are in earth's cold grasp. It's it, it's it's kind of macabre. Um, but it, it, it's it's sort of spiritually uplifting that this 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 place has a kind of cathartic power upon the writer and indeed readers, and there's a sort of salutary benefits that they're drawing from it. Um, and it's thought that this was Bath um, from from the way the topography is described. Um, and some a bit of trivia I like about this is that you know one of the ways we know about this is from a edition of it, which which is itself half in ruin. So even the poem itself is kind of half singed and in, in, it just seems kind of rather fitting. Um, but that shows actually even as far as back as the Anglo-Saxon period, people were taking an interest in these ruined places. And L- London, let's not forget, you know, with the fall of the Roman Empire, Londinium became a ghost city. Um, I, I don't really explore it in my book i evoke it because it's one of these places that has exploded outwards not inwards but um you know london became london vic which is where covent garden is today and the original shell became this sort of monstrous overgrown place with with, with brambles and infested with vikings and even wolves and it wasn't for another 300 years until king alfred led the reconquest in 886 
Um, and it kind of struck me in, in, in lockdown when I, I, I used to go for long walks through the, the paralyzed city, the stilled city, and, and, and you'd see the city on the horizon. And, you know, for the first time since then, really, it was it, it stopped dead in its tracks. There was no commerce, there was no movement, there was, it was just this sort of brooding presence on the horizon. And I sort of wondered whether that's kind of a bit like how the Anglo-Saxons would have seen Londinium when, when they were living in this other encampment called Lundenvik. Um, so what often what, what seems like a, a, a lost cause isn't. I mean, we still have Bath, obviously. We still have London. So um, they hide in plain sight, but it's hard to predict how it's going to turn out. The experience you just described there of, of walking through a, a quiet in London is interesting. It leads me on to my last question about uh, the sort of the contemporary relevances of, of what you've been doing. And you've mentioned them a couple of times in the conversation. You mm. know, we live in uh, existential times in terms of you know climate change, pandemic, uh, mm. global war, all sorts of things that, that seem to be occupying us and, 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 and very dangerous risks to to, to the generality of our existence, what mm. do, what what's, what do you take from that? How how does the, how do these lost, abandoned places that you've visited help us to understand what's maybe going on today? Yes, well, I, I, I'd say from, from the outset, you know, it, it, it the, my book's not meant to be a sort of tract about climate change or global warming, but it it, it does throw up some deeply unsettling parallels, not least because quite a lot of the places I look at were the victims of just the kind of extreme weather events that are going to become more and more common. Storms um, being the might and coastal erosion as the planet heats. And as some historians would say the storms that destroyed Dunwich and Old Winchester were actually because of medieval climate change. There's a direct parallel. So there's that there. Um, we've also covered um, places that were indirectly albeit destroyed by, by pandemics. And, you know, it's, it's frightening to think that the, the the more sort of deforestation, the more animal habitats move closer to humans, the more likely it is that we could have another pathogen leaping across or even in a melting iceberg. So it could be that we have a whole new fleet of Warren Percy's. Um, and of course, given climate change and the sorts of competition for resources and international conflicts that are going to break out, wars are more likely. So perhaps... We're going to see more stanters, more places become appropriated to prepare us for that. Um, but beyond that, I, th- I think it sort of brings into focus just the precarity of human existence, of perhaps of civilization itself, by looking at all these dead ends and false starts and, and, and places that haven't survived. Um, it just it, it just makes the present seem a bit more sort of quivering um, and, and the future that more terrifying and hopefully will will sort of cajole people um, into some kind of action. Um, It's interesting, I start with the place you've been to, Scarabray, that that was one of the first settled communities that that, that was probably the best preserved Neolithic settlement in in Northern Europe. And and, and that period was distinctive because humanity stopped being hunter-gatherers, stopped being nomadic and put down roots, fixed settlements sustained by agriculture. Um, and, you know, it, it was a harbinger of civilization, but then it's almost like it's that very same advancement that has caused this climate crisis, which we now find coming back to haunt us. And when one goes to St Kilda, which you must, I'll exhort you again to go to St Kilda, it, it's very powerful because it's a, for me at least it was a vision of the sort of brutally self-sufficient society that we may have to revert back to 
in the wake of some terrible environmental or nuclear or, or other catastrophe. So um, th- those are the sorts of things I'd say, as, as, as well as shedding a new light on Britain's history through through this un, unexpected angle. Um, it, it's one I hope that we'll, we'll speak to the present day um, and, and, and indeed the future as well. That was Matthew Green. His book, Shadowlands, A Journey Through Lost Britain, is out now, published by Faber and Faber. If you want to know more about the deserted medieval villages and the impacts of the Black Death on Britain, you can find out more on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.